It's a matter of your health. It's a matter of your health. The 30 minute radio show that gives you information and educates you on healthy living. Here's your host, board certified physician, hypertension specialist, Dr. Vita Bland. We're so very pleased to welcome back Dr. Keith C. Ferdinand. He is the Gerald Berenson Endowed Chair in Preventive Cardiology at Tulane University School of Medicine in New Orleans, Louisiana. Dr. Ferdinand, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for the opportunity, Dr. Bland. Dr. Ferdinand, as you know, this has been a rough couple of years that we've just been through. What do you see as the main problems that we need to take care of? As we look at heart health, as we look at um, black health, what do you see are the things that we need to be doing? You know, for many years, we've observed something that's quite distressing to me. There's what I call the white black death gap. Starting in the 60s for decades, we've seen shorter life expectancy for black adults versus white adults in this country. The shortest life expectancy is black males. And indeed, COVID-19 didn't help. It made it worse because of the disproportionate death that we saw in African-Americans and other racial and ethnic minorities, including Hispanic populations and indigenous people. The white-black death gap actually has worsened. It's driven primarily by cardiovascular disease, which means heart attacks and strokes, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, the conventional things that kill everyone. It just kills African-Americans at a higher rate. Is that part of the problems that keep you up at night or are there problems that keep you up at night when you think about what's going on? Boy, there's so many problems. That clearly is one. I'm somewhat unique. When I was a kid, I wasn't one of these people with the plastic stethoscope and the little bag that wanted to play doctor. I actually was going to first go into history and art, but I decided with my formal education as a very clear cut determination to become a physician because I had learned about these disparities. As I say, they've been persistent, well-documented for decades. And then as I got more into medicine, I went internal medicine after medical school at Howard University, the great HBCU in Washington, D.C. I learned that the main driver of these disparities were heart disease and stroke, and the main factor was hypertension. So that drove me into cardiology. What lays me up at night is the fact that I'm not sure. After decades of practicing medicine, first in the Ninth Ward from which I was raised, and now at Tulane Hospital, where I serve as the same community, but now as part of an academic center, that we're seeing as much progress as I had hoped. And in fact, the mortality, the death rates for heart disease are actually going up. Why do you think so? Well, there's a lot of factors. Um, access to care. As we know, persons who don't have insurance or if their insurance is not widely acceptable, don't get good care. Not having an identifiable source of primary care, someone you can call on. Unfortunately, many of my primary care brothers and sisters basically have bought into the idea that it's an eight to five job and many of them are not as responsive as I would hope they could be. Less referral to specialists, And then as we have new developments in medications and devices, and there's some wonderful drugs that have been developed and some wonderful interventions, surgical interventions and implantable defibrillators, et cetera, we see that 
the black population does not have the same access, does not have the same use of life-saving medicines, does not have the same use of newer therapies. Why is that? Um, Boy, it's really complex. Some of it's health-seeking behavior. Perhaps we're not able to navigate this very crazy, tortuous healthcare delivery system with no coordination. It's hard for a person really to find a good doctor or a good nurse practitioner and then communicate with that person. There's also bias. It's kind of hard for us as clinicians to talk about it, but when you look at surveys of registries, populations, big hospital systems, even within those big systems, and I'm talking about some of the best systems in the country, academic centers, you see the black patients have more heart failure, more heart failure hospitalization, less hemoglobin A1C as a sign of diabetes control, less blood pressure control, yes, less use of high-intensity statins, higher cholesterol. And this is even within the system. So there's a bias that's built in, even once the person accessed the system. Then there's a real problem in terms of adherence. We used to ter- use the term compliance. Compliance means thou shall do. I don't use that term. Adherence means we shall do. I think we as physicians and other clinicians, including nurse practitioners and pharmacists, need to sit down with our patients and have what's called shared decision-making, where we partner with our patients so they can understand why they need to adhere. So, Dr. Bland, I gave you a complex answer because it's a complex question, but it's all of those factors play into the disparities. You know, I talk to people who tell me they are diversity professionals and it's their job to level the field. And they tell me that their job is to make it so they don't have a job. I question if they're doing a good job, though. This is something that we see all over the country. It's not just there in New Orleans, but we see it all over the country. I'm a little bit concerned that in 2021, 2022, we think just changing nomenclature and giving fancy names and titles and having symposia is the answer to these disparities I described. For instance, the glomerular filtration rate, GFR, which is a measure of kidney function, they changed the race determined GFR. And I think that's a step forward. I think we should measure GFR the same. Mm -hmm. But some of my younger colleagues, including my students, they're spiking the football at the five-yard line. If you know football, you don't spike the ball until you reach the end zone because they think changing the lab slip or changing the name on the lab slip is going to remove the high rates of kidney failure, less transplants, less prevention that you see in the black community. I actually don't think so. Kidney disease is primarily driven by poorly controlled diabetes, poorly controlled hypertension. If you don't control that risk factor, changing the way you name the GFR on the lab slip is not going to do it. So in a way, I'm appreciative of the language of diversity and the various articles that you see in the medical literature and in the lay press. But I'm looking more for structural changes, universal access to care, universal access to newer medications and devices, evaluation of systems, looking for bias. And when I say bias, I don't mean the doctors being mean or nasty to the black patient, but perhaps not taking as much time to explain to him or her why they need to take certain medicines or adhere to certain treatment plans. Perhaps perceiving the 66-year-old lady with eighth grade English and broken English as not being able, quote, to understand their complex condition. What I often say is health literacy has nothing to do with intelligence. Some of the most intelligent people I know speak broken English. And it's our job then to sit down, eye level, literacy level, 
culturally appropriate, take the time and explain to the person. Don't assume why they don't, they don't understand. Because what you're doing is you're not getting the patient to have insight into his or her care. That patient will not partner. They will smile. They will be nice to you. And then they will immediately not fill your prescription or come back for a follow-up visit. Well, you're right about that. I think we all see it all over the country. But one of the things that bothers me the most also, in addition to what you're saying, is the landscape that I see a lot of my patients living in. What I mean by that, the food deserts that a lot of my patients live in. I don't know whether you have that so much in New Orleans or not, but I have a lot of patients that live in um, an area of town where there are no supermarkets. So how are they to get fresh food, fresh fruits, fresh vegetables? How are they to take care of themselves? They have to ride the bus to come to another place to take care of themselves. Why are not more clinics locally present so that they can attend these in uh, clinics and have someone there who they know and recognize and know that's going to be there and take care of them? Those are the things that bother me a lot. Do you have that there? Well, first of all, not only do we have that there, I was raised in one of those communities. I was raised in the Lower Ninth Ward. Most of you know it as the community that was most heavily damaged by Katrina. And if you go back to the Lower Ninth Ward now, I have an adult daughter who lives in the Lower Ninth Ward. It's still a very fractured community. I can show you empty lots, steps with no house, collapsed houses. It really never came back. There is no supermarket in a community that before Katrina was one of the largest black communities in the South, 30 to 40,000 people. The death and disability of Katrina really never brought the Ninth Ward back to its previous vitality. So food deserts are real. I know that. I see that. And even once the person gets to the store, oftentimes in the community, the the foods are, are rotten. It almost looks like the big store has sent the worst foods to those areas where they have a, a day of shelf life left. Or if they have limited means and don't have uh, government support, it's difficult to pay for the foods. The cheaper foods, high in sodium, high in sugar, high in salt, are more available than the fresh fruits, vegetables, whole grains, lean sources of protein that we talk about in the DASH diet and others. So those are structural things. That along with universal access, identifiable sources of primary care, what we call a health home, a primary source where you can go and get care, appropriate referral to specialists, those structural things. That's why I was saying with the lab slip, with the GFR, the kidney test, changing lab slips and changing the names and becoming a diversity officer, and talking about these issues. Those are not the things that I think are going to change the white-black death gap. That's going to be changed by those structural things that we have in our society. Do you think we can do more things about this in the sense of, if you look at the number of fast food restaurants that are in our communities, there tend to be more of them which have foods that are not of the best quality, foods that tend to make us gain weight and foods that a lot of people will eat because they see it as being cheaper than going to the store and getting fresh food and taking the time to cook it. To a large extent, it is cheaper. And what you said has been absolutely demonstrated that the fast food places are more prevalent in lower socioeconomic neighborhoods. It's even worse than that. If you go back to the 70s and 80s, the mentholated cigarettes 
were actually targeted to black Americans. And oh, they that. oh, absolutely. It suggested that if you wanted to be cool, you would smoke certain types of cigarettes. What I think we should do is start with the children. The endowed chair that I'm named after at Tulane is Gerald S. Berenson. He was the, the physician who had the Bugalusa heart study. Bugalusa is a small rural town on the other side of Lake Pontchartrain. If you look at Louisiana, there's a big lake right above New Orleans. And Bugalusa is on the other side of the lake. It was a biracial community. It still exists. But his study was to measure glucose, which is sugar, cholesterol, blood pressure, weight in young kids. He also had autopsy to kids if they died because of trauma or motor vehicle accident. He was able to show atherosclerosis, hypertension, prediabetes starts not in adulthood, but in the preteen years. So I think we need to start with our children and educate our children about better eating habits such that they have a propensity to want to have better foods, home cooking. And home cooking would be using more fresh fruits, vegetables, whole grains, lean sources of protein, and looking at diet as life-saving, not something that just tastes good. You can make anything taste good, work at making it taste good, but recognize that it can be life-saving. The other thing that I think we need to do is when you look at these risk factors, risk factors are things that if you have, it increases your chance of having a heart attack and stroke. So the thing that increases the risk, especially in African-Americans, is hypertension. Patients need to know their blood pressure. I believe in home blood pressure monitoring. I think we should pay for that. That should be part of the reimbursement for Medicare, Medicaid, give them a validated home blood pressure device. And there's even new technology, which I have at Tulane, where you can Bluetooth the blood pressure reading, the person has not called, they don't have to come in with a little piece of paper and scribble on it. It actually goes into the cloud and will show up on my smartphone or on my computer. I can see what their home blood pressure is. There's not much good that came out of the pandemic, but one thing we did learn is that these devices can help the patient and the clinician stay in contact even if they're not in the office. Let me reintroduce my guest today. I am just so very happy to have as our guest, Dr. Keith C. Ferdinand. Dr. Ferdinand is the Gerald, Gerald S. Berenson Endowed Chair in Preventive Cardiology at Tulane University School of Medicine in New Orleans, Louisiana. Dr. Ferdinand, we've talked about all these things. We've talked about the inequities that we've seen, especially the ones that have been brought forward by COVID. But how do we get people to buy into improving it? How do we get people to understand that if we can take care of people now, that it saves money in the long run, and more than anything else, it makes a life better and worth living? we got to keep working at it. There's no easy answer. I talked about structural difficulties people not having access because they don't have insurance or their insurance is subpar, it's not accepted by large numbers of providers, not being able to get the newer medications. For instance, there are new medicines for diabetes, both oral, by mouth, and injectables, but they really are expensive, thousands of dollars. If they have a very restricted health plan, the formulary doesn't get them, they won't get the benefit of those medicines. There are new devices, for instance, to replace the aortic valve without causing a, a major surgery. You don't have to crack the chest open. You can do it across the vessel. It's called TAVR, transaortic valve replacement. You can uh, put a mitral clip and actually help patients who have a leak in one of their valves, again, but not, without cracking the chest. But all of those things are expensive. If a person doesn't have insurance, they flat out can't pay for it. If a person is uninsured in the United States of America, they can't stuff enough money in their mattress 
to pay for these type of modern medicines and devices. Like, for instance, the new diabetes medicines average about five to six thousand dollars a year. So those are the structural things that I'm talking about. Another thing we can do is what you're doing, Dr. Blaine. You continue to be a conscious warrior for your patients to educate them and to get the word out that we as Americans need to do better. If we have these disparities, then it's not a just society. I have something that I always say is that until everyone is treated the same, has the same access, has the same use of what we call evidence-based medicine. That means medicine that's been based on clinical trials. Until everyone has the same access, then we don't have a just society. We need to treat everyone regardless of their sex, gender, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, or geography. And that's not the case right now. You can do what's called zip code analysis or geomapping. And you can look at zip codes and the longevity, the burden of disease varies widely, even within the same town, the same city. You can look at longevity, infant mortality, babies dying, women who die in childbirth, certain cancers, lung cancer, breast cancer. I mean, it's such a diverse group of bad outcomes, then you know it's not genetic because there's no gene or set of genes that can cause all of these various disparities. So the answer, there is no easy answer, but the answer is not simply saying we're going to have a diversity section and we're going to change the names on lab slips. That's not the answer. Well, let me just ask you a question that I think is important. Who are your heroes? You know, who do you look up to? Wow. I got a lot of heroes. Um, I'm, I'm raised old school New Orleans, so I got to go to my parents, both mother and father. I'll go for my father. He was an Army veteran. And the untold story about the civil rights era is that, yes, uh, Martin Luther King and NAACP marched, et cetera. But the masses of people who pushed that to happen were a lot of the soldiers who came back from World War II in Korea. They just had laid their life down, had seen their brothers and sisters murdered in the fields, and they came home and couldn't eat at the lunch counter. And it enraged many of them. So, yes, they had leaders who were able to eloquently speak to the need to have voting rights and civil rights. But the reason there was so such a push behind them, many of them were the veterans. My doctor, Fall, LaSalle LaFall at Howard University, was a surgeon. I'm not a surgeon. I'm a cardiologist. That was one. And Dr. Charles Curry, he's a cardiologist, uh, retired at Howard. Um, and Dr. Berenson himself, Berenson is not an African-American, but he's the guy who identified these risk factors in young children. And he taught me that to be a cardiologist is not just to stick tubes in people and do surgery, but to control these risk factors. So I start with my family, but those are at least three doctors um, who have inspired me to do better. Beautiful. One of the other questions that I wanted to ask of you is, I know that you know President Biden, and I thought I heard from a little birdie that he may want you to be the Secretary of Health. So just in case he comes around and says, Dr. Ferdinand, we know what a fabulous doctor you are. We know you know what's going on. And if he came up to you and said, okay, Dr. Ferdinand, I'm giving you the reins. You are going to be the Secretary of Health. What would you do? What would be your priorities? Well, throughout this particular conversation, Dr. Bland, I've spoken about access and having proper insurance. We know that the Affordable Care Act exists. That's Obamacare. But everybody doesn't have that. And all forms of Obamacare are not equal. We should have the best care for everyone. Universal health care is a right. So that's the first thing. 
Go to those areas where the Affordable Care Act has not been taken up, Medicaid has not been expanded, and give everybody the best care. We have these big gleaming glass and steel buildings called hospitals, these big institutions of learning where I'm in right now, one called medical school. So we have the facilities. And in fact, many of them are even looking for patients to fill their beds. Mm. So we need to make sure that everybody has universal access to care, everybody. And it's not that way now. The second thing is that I would go back to the schools. And as you know, especially disadvantaged children, that school lunch program can be life-saving. The school breakfast, the school lunch, and for those who have working parents in the after school, give them an after school snack. The United States government prepares 60% of the prepared foods in the United States. 60%. How is that? The school lunches, the military, the prisons, and the commodities. So the United States government can go a long way towards a more healthy society if they make available free breakfast, free lunches. The commodities have lower salt, lower fat foods available, the same fresh foods we talked about in the food desert. So access to care, insurance, working on available foods in schools throughout the society. And then I would look within hospitals and within large registries. And if I saw these disparities, which I'm going to see them because I've already told you they exist and I think you know they exist. Boy, I'm not one about penalizing people to do better. I would hope to be able to inspire people to do better if I were the leader, but I'd have to penalize them. I'd say, if I do an evaluation of your blood pressure and there's a five millimeters mercury difference, the black patients have higher blood pressures and the black patients with diabetes, less of them have a hemoglobin A1C, under seven. And I do an LDL cholesterol and all these things are in the electronic health record. And the black patients have more patients with an LDL greater than 100. And I look at women 50 and above. And I look at the proportion who've had a screening mammogram in the last one to two years. And the black patients is much different within their system. I penalize them because I will say that, yes, your black patients may have less healthy, health-seeking behavior because of health literacy and don't push to get their A1C down, their blood pressure control, their mammogram done. But you have a responsibility to educate patients to control these risk factors, to do these preventive screenings. And if you don't do it, Because you're receiving federal funds, I would penalize you. I wouldn't put the penalty out front. It'd be there in the small print. I would first have a campaign to tell them to check their electronic health records for disparities, and we'd give them six months to correct them and tell them we're going to do a reevaluation. But in the small print, it would have, and if you don't, 1% of your Medicare, Medicaid dollars are going to be taken back. They've done that with re-hospitalization for heart failure. So it sounds really terrible, but it's already been done with heart failure. If a person comes back within 30 days with a heart failure readmission and it doesn't meet certain bench points, then 1% of the federal dollars to that institution can be taken back at the end of the year. Now, watch what I'm about to say. We're getting a little complex. Let's think about this. Okay. We need to make sure that there is a way to protect the safety net hospitals and the providers who in the neighborhood, my cardiovascular center, I'm at an academic center, but my cardiovascular center for many years was in the ninth ward. We need to protect them by giving them more leeway because they're going to have patients in those small community hospitals, those minority serving doctors. I didn't say minority doctors. Many of them could be of self-identified white. doesn't make a difference, but they could be working in a heavily black or Latino community, then they're going to not have as good numbers just by the nature of the social determinants of health, where people work, live, play, and pray. So I don't want the unintended consequence 
of penalizing them because they're serving a harder to treat patient population. Boy, I gave you a long answer again. But really, it involves universal access to health care, the best health care for everybody. It involves going into the schools, school lunches, making them heart healthy. It involves federal sources of food, not only the schools, the prisons, the military, making them more healthy. And it involves looking within health care itself, within the registries, the electronic health records. And when you identify these disparities, don't hold a seminar and write a paper about, oh, look how bad the disparities are. Penalize them if they don't make corrections. So I guess okay. I guess the president's not going to call me, huh? <laughs> I, I think he will. I'm pretty sure he will. <laughs> but let me ask you one other question. Vaccine hesitancy. Yes. It's been pretty, it's, it's a big deal, especially in the communities of color. Any yes. suggestion to help with that? Not only do I have a suggestion, I, I suggest you look at the data, look at the Kaiser Foundation data most recently. Early on in the pandemic, especially the African-American community was very hesitant. They they talked about the Tuskegee experiment, and I don't want to be a guinea pig, et cetera. But through trusted messengers, and I do this in Louisiana, I'm actually on the health equity task force for the governor. I'm on the vaccination action committee, and I work with NIH in something called Communities Engagement Alliance or the SEAL program. We now go to Kaiser Foundation and look at vaccine uptake by race. We now have been able to narrow that gap. Hispanics use vaccination as much as self-identified whites, and the white-black death gap for vaccination has improved. So who's these trusted messengers that I just mentioned? Well, hopefully I'm one, and it's not just because I'm a doctor. You could be a doctor and not be trusted. But doctors who come from the community that they're speaking to, where they have a track record of serving that community, like yourself, they're trusted. Could be a minister who for years has had free lunch programs and has had health screenings, et cetera. And now, once the minister looks at the data and sees the safety and efficacy of the vaccines, takes them up. It could be a nurse who works in a local clinic or hospital where he or she has been known for years to serve as patients, even before the pandemic. It could be a community activist who's been out there marching for voting rights and supporting political campaigns but is now a trusted messenger because he or she has looked at the data and says it's good for our community. And we have data that we have been able to close the white-black gap in vaccination. Although the disparate rates of sickness and illness still persist, they also have narrowed. So there is some success there. We've been able to do good. All righty. Well, Dr. Ferdinand, we thank you so much for being with us. Any parting words? No, thank you for the opportunity to speak directly to our community, our patients. When I say our patients, say, wait a minute, I don't know this doctor. Everyone's our patient. Everyone. Until we treat everybody the same, sex, gender, race, ethnicity, social class, geography, nobody's healthy. So everybody, we're all one. It's called Ubuntu in (laughs) South African language. It means we are here because you are, we are. It means everybody's together. Like we are family. Remember that old soul song? We are family. It just means that we should embrace the idea that until everyone is healthy, no one is healthy. Thank you again, Doc. Thank you, Dr. Keith C. Ferdinand, Gerald S. Baronson, Endowed Chair in Preventive Cardiology, Tulane University School of Medicine, New Orleans, Louisiana. Dr. Ferdinand, we thank you so much. You are fabulous. All right. You've been listening to It's a Matter of Your Health, the 30-minute radio show that educates you and gives you information on healthy living with board-certified physician and hypertension specialist, Dr. Vita Bland. 